Acts chapter 3. We finished our study. We spent some time there. We camped out there in chapter 2, just because chapter 2 is such a critically important chapter in the whole book. And as I've been describing in our studies so far, um, we're about, I think this is something like study number 36 in the book of Acts already, and we're only through the first two chapters. But as I've been describing all along, the first two chapters are really foundational for the rest of the book. Uh, They require a little bit more uh, attention, a little bit more focus than the remaining chapters. Doesn't mean that we should just you know, kind of, kind of ignore what's coming. But if we don't understand what's in the first two, we won't really grasp what's in the chapters yet to uh, yet to be studied. So we spend a little bit extra time as we're starting chapter three today. We're going to pick up some momentum. We won't spend as much time. Uh, so if I've done thirty six in the first two chapters, that means I was averaging eighteen studies per chapter. I'm thinking as we go forward between three to five studies for most of the chapters that are ahead of us. We'll see how that unfolds, but that's the plan anyway. Today, we're going to bite off a a significantly large chunk of scripture, though, and try to cover the first 10 verses of chapter three. Should work well because it's essentially one story that is happening here. So let me read from Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All right, so the setting of this story is, we don't know exactly how long some Some commentators say it might have just been a few days later. Others say it may have been months, even possibly up to two years later from the events of chapter 2, where we saw on the day of Pentecost the Spirit filling the 120 disciples who were in the upper room and the events of that day being so amazing that it kind of spilled out of the upper room into the streets and 3,000 curious people from the city came to find out what was going on and Peter taking advantage of the moment by the Spirit of God stood and proclaimed the gospel for the very first time in the new covenant era and in that circumstance those 3,000 all came to know the Lord on that day. They were then baptized and they were added as as Luke describes it back in chapter 2 they were added to the church 
And now we're dealing with some approximately 3,120 people rather than the 120 people that began that day following the Lord. And in that circumstance, in our last study, we saw that we got a glimpse of the life of the early church. They were a devoted people. They were devoted to four things in particular, to the teaching, the doctrinal instruction in God's word from a new covenant perspective now. And they were devoted to the fellowship, the new family connection that the Lord had formed among them through their shared experience of the new birth, the the salvation that the Lord had accomplished in them. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which we have interpreted both as what we just did, which is coming to the Lord's table and what we call communion, but also sharing common meals together, what the early church later came to call sharing love feasts or agape feasts with one another. And then they were devoted, of course, to praying together and praying for one another. So in that circumstance, all I can say is sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, chapter three opens up and now we have just a a story in the midst of the life of the early church. It starts in an interesting way. It's describing uh, just a daily activity, as far as we can tell, of Peter and John. Peter and John, of course, are two of the apostles. They're two of the significant apostles, even among the 12, meaning that they were, Peter and John, they were two of the three, remember, that were kind of the innermost circle of the apostles, closest to the Lord Jesus, and even blessed in our study back in the Gospel of Matthew with Uh, the privilege of going up on the Mount of Transfiguration sometime before to see Jesus fully revealed in his glory before them. And so Peter and John have apparently formed a a bond. They've formed a spiritual connection. Uh, Peter is fully restored now from his failure the night that Jesus was betrayed. Uh, John and him are close, they're connected, and they are now going to prayer, it describes at the beginning of verse one. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now what's interesting here is not just that Peter and John decided to pray. You know, it's not like, okay, they're still in the upper room and now the two of them are going to have a private prayer time uh, as they as they kneel down and pray together or sit down and pray together. But what they're doing is they're praying at a specific hour and they're praying at a specific location and the location here is the temple. The temple was a, uh, as as we've studied many times before, it was, it was a huge complex and it had the innermost building which was where the actual business of the Lord was accomplished and only the Levitical priests were allowed to enter into that that innermost structure. Uh, Both Peter and John were not Levitical priests and they had no right to enter the temple proper, but they were able to enter the courtyards of the temple like every Jewish male was able to do and approach the Lord and have a time of prayer there in the courtyard and that's exactly what they're doing now why would they instead of praying in the upper room be going to the temple because this was a pattern that was common among the jewish people in those days and they are peter and john they're now part of a new thing that the lord is doing the new thing is the church the new thing is the eruption of the kingdom of god on earth as represented by the saved people that are now going to be identified as the church, 
But the Lord is still continuing for a period of time, and it's going to continue for the next 40 years. He's still continuing the old covenant way of approaching him. So what you have during the next 40 years, and that will, of course, span the entire book of Acts, is you have this interesting juxtaposition of two things that are going on at the same time, both related to approaching the Lord. You have the old covenant way of approaching the Lord, which was focused on the temple, and it was through the avenue of the Levitical priests and the sacrificial system, and all of the rituals of the old covenant, none of which were bad, but they are old covenant specific. And then you have the church, which is just beginning, and the newness of a new way of approaching the Lord, not through a sacrificial system, not through a Levitical priesthood, and not limited to the physical structure of the temple at all. Because the church itself is a spiritual structure, which the Lord intends to replace the old physical structure of the temple. So much so that the church will be identified in the near future by the apostles as the new covenant temple of God. But in the meantime, you've got both things happening at the same time. And so Peter and John are fully committed to the new way of approaching the Lord, but they're also still participating in the old way of approaching the Lord. And it was the common practice during three specific times of day for the Levitical priests to lead those that gathered in the temple courtyard in prayer. And so Peter and John are going to the temple in order to participate in that prayer. And this happened every afternoon on, on the dot at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. was considered in their way of reckoning time, the ninth hour. That's why it's identified here in verse one that they went up at the ninth hour. It's the ninth hour because they start their daily clock at 6 a.m. in the morning rather than at midnight in the way that we do. So for us, 3 p.m. would be the 15th hour of the day if you're going by military time. But for them, starting at 6 a.m. in the morning, you get to 3 p.m. and it's the ninth hour. So that's the background of what's, what's happening here in verse one. Now, as they are approaching the temple, they're entering through the gates that lead through the various courtyards of the temple, going deeper and deeper into the temple precincts until they come to one specific and notable gate, which is the beautiful gate. All right, so what I've done is I've provided a, uh, a photograph here of a diagram of the temple courtyard. Now, I just didn't have room to put the entire thing up there, but you have the basics. So there's one difference in terms of what I'm going to be describing, and it's not a super important difference, but it is something to, to take note of. And that is, if you'll notice here on this diagram, this lowest gate at the bottom of the page is labeled in whoever did this diagram as the beautiful gate. And you'll, you'll see back in um, Acts 3.1, uh, excuse me, Acts 3.2, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. So the diagram maker here thinks that this, all, this interaction between Peter and John and the man that was lame from birth took place out here. But I'm convinced, and many Bible scholars are as well, I didn't come up with this idea myself, 
that the second gate, the one right in the middle of this page, which is on the diagram labeled the Nicanor Gate, that that actually was also named the Beautiful Gate. It was called the Nicanor Gate uh, technically because it was an honor given to the man. One single rich Jewish man paid for that middle gate. And he sent to the city of Corinth, which we're familiar with, which was back in Greece, for a very special bronze that was only produced there in Corinth. It was known as Corinthian bronze. And these gates were constructed out of that, uh, that rich and rare Corinthian bronze. And then there was a coating of gold and silver plates on top of that bronze. Now, these gates were not like... Uh, just, I don't want to hurt anybody's neck, but take a look back at the, at the gate, so to speak, into this sanctuary. Uh, how tall are these doors? Eight feet. Eight feet, maybe. Okay, this gate, this beautiful gate, was 45 feet tall and 45 feet wide. Each door, there was a double door. Each door was 22 and a half feet wide. So 40 feet wide, 45 feet wide by 45 feet tall, and it was exceptionally expensive. You know, if you can imagine, uh, we're thinking about putting a new doorway into our home, and I'm like calculating, you know, affordability, and it's an eight foot tall doorway. And uh, if you can imagine how expensive a 45 foot tall by 45 feet wide gate would have been, and that it was constructed out of a special metal that had to be carted all the way from Greece, the city of Corinth, all the way to Jerusalem in order to construct the gate in the way that they did. And so the man's name was Nicanor. It was named in his honor, of course, and then it was also identified and described as the beautiful gate because each one of the gates into the temple, there were also gates on either side that led into the courtyards, but each gate in the temple was a beautiful thing, but that one was considered the most beautiful of all the gates. And in terms of our story, uh, we can go on to the to the next uh, slide now. In terms of our story, we have some details given to us and one of which is that there was this man who had been born lame, meaning he had no ability to stand on his own. Why, what exactly was wrong with him? We don't know what the exact condition was, but it involved both his feet and his ankles being too weak to enable him to stand on his own. And he, of course, if he couldn't stand, he couldn't walk, let alone run or or do any kind of manual labor. And so as a result... This man um, was, uh, in those days, there was no government assistance in that sense. Um, he, was, uh, he was relegated to begging for a living. And so he apparently had friends, maybe family members, that would carry him on a uh, kind of like a litter. And they would carry him from wherever it was that he lived. We don't know how far away he lived. But they would carry him to that gate every morning and this is what he did all day long and he did it for his living where he would be just outside the beautiful gate and he's waiting there hoping that people that are coming to the temple with a hopefully tender heart 
you know, you come to church, hopefully. I, I know how this works for me and probably works the same way for you. Our heart should always be tender toward the Lord. Our heart should always be in the right uh, perspective and attitude toward the Lord. But when I'm coming to church, I stop and really check myself. I don't want to walk into a church service with my heart hardened toward the Lord or in some kind of bad place toward the Lord. And so this was true of anyone visiting the temple. And so the man knew this is a golden place and a golden opportunity. It's the most advantageous circumstance and spot for me to lean on the charitable generosity of the people that are coming to worship the Lord. And it was considered in the society and culture of that day an even more virtuous thing to give a gift to the poor and needy if it was in the location of the temple courtyard. Meaning that if you ran into a a poor and needy person elsewhere in town and you were generous to them as the Lord instructed his people to be in, in the Old Testament law of Moses, that was a good thing and they considered it to be a virtuous thing to give in generosity, the charity to the poor. But if you did it in the location of the temple, you got extra brownie points. Now, is that what the Lord says in his word? No, but that was the perspective of the culture. And so the ideal begging spot was not in front of the local 7-Eleven, but it was at the temple gate as the people entered to worship the Lord. And so he's there and Peter and John are on their way to pray. So they're passing through the beautiful gate to get into the inner courtyard where the Levitical priests will lead the time of prayer at 3 p.m. that afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on my way to a church meeting, I get focused. Meaning I, like, I'm driving my car from my house to church this morning, and I'm not listening to the news. I'm not just having idle thoughts in my mind. I usually put on worship music in my car. I'm praying. I'm getting my heart ready to meet the Lord and to meet with God's people and to accomplish whatever the assignment is the Lord has given me that day to accomplish. And most likely, Peter and John were the same way, most likely they're coming to a prayer meeting and they're probably focused. And here they are on their way into the temple and they're passing, about to pass through the beautiful gate and this man sees them before they see him. And he does this. Let's look at uh, verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, alms is just a charitable donation, a charitable gift. And the word asked in our translation is not really strong enough. It probably would be better translated either he beseeched them or he begged them. And not in a bad sense, not in a negative connotation of begging, but in the connotation of I'm truly in need and you are able to help meet my need. And the way it's described by Luke is it's not just that he quietly called out and said, you know, alms for the poor, and then kind of left it in in their hearts as to whether they were going to give something to him. He beseeched them and continued to beseech them. Meaning, they're walking and he knows. How long has he been there? Turn over for one second to uh, Acts 4. 
one chapter deeper. Look at verse 22. It's going to speak about the same man after he's healed. But looking back on his history, it says in verse 22 of chapter 4, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. But he's described back in chapter 3 as lame from birth. So how long had he been begging at the beautiful gate of the temple? Probably at least 20 years, maybe a little bit longer. They probably wouldn't have had him begging there when he was five years old. But he certainly had been doing it for as long as he was an adult and needing to provide for his own income. And though he wasn't able to work, this was his way of providing for his own income. So for 20 years, he had, he had a lot of practice at, at begging. You know, you can practice just about any activity that you do and get better at it if you're focused on getting better at it. And since this was his livelihood, I would imagine he was focused on being better and more successful at beseeching those who came into the temple. So he saw them... And there is a specific amount of time as someone's walking up to you until you're laying, you can't move, you're laying there at the gate until someone walks up to you and then past you. And once they cross the threshold of the gate, you've lost your opportunity to receive a charitable gift from them. So you've got to be really focused as a beggar on I want to draw their full heart's compassion and attention toward me in the few seconds that I have. And so how Luke describes it is he was beseeching them as they're walking up to him. Now, what's really interesting to me is in verse four, how Peter and John respond to his begging. As I said, I would be in a focus mode. I'm on my way to a meeting. I'm on my way to a a temple service. Peter and John, hearing him beseech them, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now, I'm just going to be honest about my own experience, and this isn't consistent. This isn't what I do every single time. How many of you have ever been approached by a probably homeless beggar in our society today and been asked for money. How many of you, like walking into a store, I said 7-Eleven, but right near our house, we have a, we have a, a, a different kind of mini mart, a Circle K. And uh, I oftentimes will go there, park my car, and there's usually at least one beggar between my car and the front door of the Circle K. And uh, walking in, I, I would just, I'm just being honest with you, I'm not, I'm not uh, proud about it, but more than once, I anticipated the begging and didn't want to be bothered with the interaction between myself and them and have just kind of focused my eyes on the door or focused my eyes on the ground in front of me and just walked right past them and left it up to them whether they would be bold enough to speak up and say something to me instead of directing my gaze at them and just walked in, done my business, and walked out and gone back to my car. Now, there are other times when, you know, the Lord was stirring my heart and I would stop and actually even start a conversation with someone. But the idea here to me is that 
Peter and John are on their way to a meeting. They're probably focused like I am when I'm on my way to a meeting. And this man is begging and they stop what they're doing that day. And I don't know. We're not told. The, The text doesn't give us this detail. I don't know what was going on in Peter's mind in that moment or John's mind at that moment. But it seems like Peter suddenly becomes aware that there's something bigger going on here than just attending another temple prayer meeting that day. Something more significant spiritually in God's kingdom is needing to take place than him getting quickly through that gate and past the beggar and on to meet with the others that are gathering for prayer. So Peter fixes his gaze on the man, meaning he he looks at him intently. Now, probably, if there's anyone wanting to avert their gaze, it's not Peter, it's probably the man, because Peter's eyes are boring into this man's soul in this moment, and John along with him. And they say to him, look at us. And so the man does, he looks at them, and we're told in the next verse that he now fixes his attention on them like they've fixed their attention on him and he has a certain expectation. He expected to receive something from them. What did he expect to receive? Some money. He's crying out for money. They look at him. They actually speak to him, which was probably rare. It was probably rare. In all of his years of begging, we don't know how many times someone actually stopped and talked to him. But even those that gave charitable donations to him probably just kept walking and then dropped some coins into whatever it is that he was holding out, whether it was his hand or some bowl or whatever he was using to collect the donations, and then would keep walking through the gate to not be bothered with having a conversation with him. But Peter and John are stopping and they are giving their full attention to him and they're initiating a conversation with him, but it's along a different line than what he expected. He expected to receive a donation. Instead, Peter says this to him. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Now, I don't want to make too much of this. I don't, but I want to make something of it, and that is it's just interesting that Peter and John have no silver and gold in their pocket in that, on that day. I, I don't know about you. I never leave the house without some money in my pocket. I just never know when you might need some money. And so I always have some money in my wallet. I don't have a, a tremendous amount, but I always carry some with me. And in my car, I have a little coin tray. I always carry some coins with me. I never use them, but whatever. I carry coins with me also. I've always got some money with me. And uh, so if you're in need, you can come and talk to me later. I've got some money with me. And yet Peter and John didn't. I don't know why they didn't have any money with them, but it's, it's interesting to me and it caught my attention. I've read this story a hundred times and I'm familiar with it and you know I, I know it in the old King James like many of you do as well. Silver and gold have I none. Here it's translated in, in more of a modern translation. I have no silver and gold. Uh, But it did remind me, and it did cause me to to stop and think. I had just seen this week. It's interesting how sometimes the Lord will put things things together for my sake as I'm 
preparing studies in his word. I had just seen a couple of different documentaries this week, a couple of different videos uh, on on different church situations out there in the wider body of Christ. And uh, one of which was, uh, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a website on the internet, of course, that, uh, that tracks mega pastors. I'm talking about pastors of huge, gigantic churches. Churches far, far, far larger than our church. And it tracks these pastors not for their doctrinal content, there are other websites that do that, uh, you know, that are helpful even in, in uh, the Christian community. But this is a website that tracks their expenditures and keeps track of what mega pastors spend their personal money on or possibly in some inappropriate cases, church money on. And this one in particular started by just tracking the shoes that mega pastors buy and wear. And um, it showed some examples of specific mega pastors. I could name the names, and you'd know many of the names that are involved in this uh, this observation that this website makes. And uh, these are like shoes that are, for instance, eight thousand dollars a pair. Now, I just want to say, no, check out my shoes. I mostly wear like comfy shoes. I hope they don't offend you, but I wear, I wear comfy slip-on shoes. And these were exceptionally expensive. I paid extra for these. These were $29.95. I have maybe one pair of shoes that is as expensive as $50. And I felt kind of bad buying a $50 pair of shoes. Um, you know, but I went ahead and splurged. And so I have a $50 pair of shoes just for full disclosure. Um, but can you imagine? I mean, I just, can you imagine buying a pair of $8,000 shoes and then wearing them out in public? I mean, if I did, I would never, but if I did buy a pair of $8,000 shoes, I'd, I'd put some kind of like glass case display in my house and put them in the glass case. Um, you know, if they were like a collector item and you could resell them later for $10,000 rather than the 8000 that you bought them for. But these are pastors that have a lot of income because their churches are so large and they go out and they spend their money on stuff in exorbitant ways and the shoes is just the start there's one video i saw this week of a of a well-known pastor in the prosperity faith uh movement and which is like a subculture in in uh, christianity and he was bragging boasting really about the watch that he was wearing while he was preaching. I don't wear a watch, but he does. And his watch, he claimed, was he purchased it for over $100,000. He was boasting about it because it actually is part of his spiritual brand, so to speak. Meaning, if you follow me, if you follow my instructions, if you do what I do, if you listen to my, to my teaching of God's word, you can be as rich as I am. You can be as prosperous as I am. He's kind of like putting himself in the forefront of saying, I'm the model of how if you have the right relationship with the Lord, you can be as healthy and wealthy as I am. You know, and of course, you you understand that I don't uh, subscribe to that approach. But he does, and 
in this video, he was, he was boasting about his over $100,000 watch. And I was just thinking, when I then, it, I, I watched these two videos, I wasn't, this was before I started my preparation for chapter three, and I came to this verse. Peter said, I have no silver and gold. And it, you know, it, just, it just stood out to me. Uh, there's a famous story from church history. It's a short story, I'll read it. Uh, this is from uh, Middle Ages time period, like a thousand years ago. And uh, it was the Catholic Church, and they had a famous theologian in the Catholic community by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And this was from a conversation between him and the Pope of that time, who was Pope Innocent II, who wasn't really all that innocent. But um, anyway, here's the story. Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II when the Pope was counting out a large sum of money from the offerings to the church. And the Pope started a conversation with Thomas and said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold, have I none. And he's saying that, he was saying that kind of in a proud, boasting way. And Aquinas replied, true, Holy Father, but neither can she now say, rise and walk. The idea is, yes, okay, maybe the church has gained something in terms of its prosperity, but may have lost something in terms of its spiritual power and what the Lord has accomplished us to do in our assignments. So in this circumstance, the man hears from Peter, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. So Peter is intentionally now, the man doesn't yet understand this as he's hearing these words. Like he's thinking, as soon as the words are spoken, okay, I'm not gonna get silver and gold from them. I'm gonna get something else though of value. They're gonna give me something of value. And it's true that Peter intended to give him something of value. And Peter ultimately, by the grace of God, did give him something of value, something of far greater value than any donation he had ever received in his many years of begging at the beautiful gate. And Peter, though, sees what he's about to do as a valued gift that would be greater than any donation he could possibly give to him. And so he says to the man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he goes one step further beyond his words, and he took the man by his right hand and raised him up. Now, this is a word, raised him up. It it has kind of a vigorous connotation to it. He didn't just gently take the man by hand and, and just guide him as he stood up. He grabbed him by the hand and he, he jerked him to his feet. Now, what struck my heart about that is the holy boldness of Peter to do this. I am not recommending that you leave today and go find people that have some challenge physically and start jerking their body around. I am not recommending that you do this. But Peter did it, and there's a reason why Peter did it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when he did it, he still, in spite of the fact that he was graced from the Lord, gifted from the Lord, empowered by the Lord, it still required holy boldness to do what he did that day. So he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and as he did, 
as, as soon as Peter jerked this man to his feet, and I just love the emphasis of this key word, immediately the man's feet and ankles were made strong. I'm going to classify this not as a healing. There are many times that the Lord healed people. There were times that Peter and John had participated as being used by the Lord to heal people. This is greater than a healing. This was a miracle. This was an instantaneous. It wasn't like the man began to you know, convalesce from this moment. And a week later, he was able to shakily rise to his feet. He immediately received strengthened ankles and feet. Now, I've never experienced this, but I've seen this in actual documentaries where someone who had lost the ability to walk, maybe like we had a a brother in the Lord here in our congregation that had a stroke, and he, prior to the stroke, was a strong man, and then after the stroke, he had to relearn how to walk. It wasn't easy, and it took time. It took months for him to learn how to walk again. Just rewiring brain pathways that had been damaged in the stroke so that he could actually, in his brain, conceptualize how to take one step forward and not be shaky and not fall over. This man, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. As soon as he stood up, it was immediate. And then next, it says... He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, which is a small detail, but it's an important one. Most likely, this man had never been inside the temple prior to this moment in his life because he was a lame man. And it was just considered socially, spiritually, religiously, from a ritual standpoint, unacceptable for him to pass through that beautiful gate into the inner courtyard. He was as close as he could get to God, speaking of the temple as God's house, but had never been able to get any closer. Now he enters the temple with them, and as he enters the temple with them, he's already walking. He didn't have to go through physical therapy. He didn't have to go through some process of figuring out, rewiring the brain pathways. Remember, when, when did he become lame? From birth. He had never learned to walk. Now suddenly he is walking, and on top of that, he's leaping. Like Peter and John are probably, because they're walking, he walked with them. So they're walking through the gate, their normal gate. But he is so overjoyed that he's like, he's like Tigger bouncing along with them, heading into the temple. He is just overwhelmed with joy at what has just changed his life forever. And of course, as he enters the temple in that way all the people meaning all of the people gathered for the prayer meeting that was about to take place there was a large there would have been a large crowd at 3 p.m in the afternoon all the people saw him walking and praising god and recognize him that's the guy that's always there asking me for money when i come into the temple through the beautiful gate they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they not just the man not just Peter, not just John, the whole crowd is filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, I want to call this miracle evangelism. Now, we're going to, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at what happens next. Starting in verse 11, we have a similar patterning to what happened on the day of Pentecost. 
A miracle happened on the day of Pentecost, and when the crowd gathered out of amazement, Peter stands in the midst of the crowd and he proclaims the gospel to them. You look in, 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 uh, in verse 11 and 12, we'll just jump ahead. I'm not gonna teach these two verses. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's the outside porch area of the temple uh, precincts. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, and he begins to proclaim the gospel similarly to how he did on the day of Pentecost. Peter now sees this as the Lord's opportunity to reach people for the Lord and that the Lord started this opportunity not by Peter and John handing out tracts in the temple, not by Peter and John just going up and tapping on people's shoulders and saying, hey, can we have a conversation? Can I talk to you about my relationship with the Lord and what should be your relationship with the Lord? It started by a a significant working of God. And as a result, they've got a ready-made crowd interested to hear what it is they have to say. Now, what ends up happening from this is that this is the second great evangelism moment in the book of Acts, the first being on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, if you remember, 3,000 souls came to know the Lord, were born again that day, and were baptized and, and joined the church, so to speak. What's going to happen, look over in chapter four once more at verse four. Peter is speaking to them the rest of chapter three, and then verse four describes, but many of those who had heard the word believed that is the same day. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. It was a huge crowd at the temple. It was a gigantic courtyard. Huge crowd gathered. 3,000 came to know the Lord on the day of Pentecost. Second evangelism opportunity, 5,000 come to know the Lord in a single day. So the church grows not a little bit at a time here in the early book of Acts. Though there is a little bit at a time, people being added to the Lord as chapter two ended and described it in that way. But there's these big leap forwards as large groups are added to the church, at least in the first two evangelism moments in the early church history. 3,000 on one day, 5,000 on another day, and now the church is numbering suddenly over 8,000 people in a single day. But it all boils down to, and it all comes back to, the Lord doing a miracle. Had the Lord not done the miracle that day, it's entirely possible that those 5,000 people wouldn't have come to know the Lord in the way that they did. In other words, the Lord used the miracle to draw the crowd and to open the hearts and the minds of the crowd to the message that would save them. The man getting healed in a miraculous way could not save the crowd. Only the message of the gospel can. But the man getting healed and miraculously restored that day could open the eyes and the hearts and the minds of people that ordinarily would not even be interested in paying attention. And so the Lord does what he does and the way that he does in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, how does this relate to us? Well, I believe in miracles. 
I believe God is a miracle working God. I believe God did a miracle that day and many other miracles in those days. I believe that God still does miracles and I believe God will do miracles. But I will say this, I have never personally witnessed one. I've seen people healed. That's a little bit different. I've seen many times people healed in response to believing prayers of faith for their restoration from some injury or some weakness or some illness. But I've never seen a miracle like this, an instantaneous, immediate, obvious miracle in this way. But that doesn't mean I, that doesn't cause me to not believe in them. But I will say this, that the church is off, the church often struggles on the miracle issue and it struggles for three reasons. One, some deny the possibility of any miracles after the first century. Meaning there are some good-hearted believers that look at the story of God's work in the book of Acts and say, somewhere, somewhere near the end of the book of Acts, God stopped doing miracles and he just hasn't done any for 2,000 years since then. I personally am, am convinced that that's not the case. On the other hand, some claim that events that happen around them are miracles when they aren't miracles. And I think this is not as big a problem as the first, but it is a big problem, meaning that the idea of miracles gets watered down because anything that's, that's the hand of the Lord at work in your life, sometimes people with good intentions will say, God did a miracle for me. When, when the Lord hasn't done, you know, I, I'm saying, I've never witnessed a miracle, but I can tell you God has worked in my life in amazing ways, but he's never done a miracle with me, in me, or through me, all right? So I'm a big believer in miracles, but I'm a big believer in, in rightly identifying what is a miracle and what is not a miracle. And then the third issue, of course, is that there are some who purposefully fake miracles, in order to take advantage of naive people. I'm going to name just two names as examples. I don't mind naming them. If you have an issue with the names that I name being uh, uh, described in this way, you can come and talk to me later and I'll explain to you why this is a good thing to name them in this way. The first is Benny Hinn. How many of you have ever heard of Benny Hinn? Familiar with Benny Hinn? It's a guy that's on TV. I don't know if he's still on TV, but he does Miracle Crusades. And his whole calling card is, you know, come to my meetings, give me lots of money. And he's one of those, by the way, that, you know, would be tracked by the website that I'm describing earlier. But nevertheless, he, he come to my meetings, give me your money, and I will pray and the Lord will do miracles in this meeting. Every single meeting that he holds, the Lord does miracles. Or like, at least that's the claim. Um, years ago, Benny Hinn came to Los Angeles and our church actually went and did something to figure out his claims, the authenticity of his claims. We interviewed people that were standing in line going in to the Benny Hinn crusade and we interviewed people coming out after they had been on the crusade and we specifically were focused on any that were allowed to go on stage with him. Because he doesn't go down and circulate among the crowd and do miracles like Jesus did, circulating among the multitudes that gathered. He allows certain people to be brought on stage. He prays for them and apparently does miracles with them. 
including things like someone will be brought on the stage in a wheelchair and he'll grab their hand like Acts chapter 3 and jerk them out of the wheelchair and they start walking. We interviewed at least one person that was in that circumstance only to find out that they did not come to the crusade in a wheelchair. They were placed in a wheelchair by the Benny Hinn crusade and brought on stage in a wheelchair, jerked out of the wheelchair to make it seem like they suddenly were able to walk when they couldn't walk before, but they had come for a completely different physical issue. And there are many, many things like that that Benny Hinn does in a fake, inauthentic, intentionally deceptive way to gain advantage over the naive. And his advantage that he's looking to gain is what? A deeper reach into their pockets, and that's pretty much it. Uh, another example, um, how many are familiar with Bethel Ministries up in Northern California, Redding, California? They're one of the two big music ministry uh, that are most famous. They produce a lot of songs and stuff. Uh, they are, I, I can't go into all the details. I just don't have time. They're way, way off base. But one of the things that they do is they have a, a claim to miracles. And as part of their worship services, two of the things that they've done in times past, I don't know if they're still doing this, but at certain key emotional moments of their worship service, the lights dim, um, you know, there's worship music going on, and suddenly people are aware that there's, there's gold dust falling from the ceiling upon them. And the claim from those that lead the ministry is that this is an evidence of God's spirit that he's causing actual real gold dust to fall on them. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they've got somebody in the rafters pouring out glitter upon the, uh, upon the congregation. And then along with that, there are small feathers that fall from the ceiling. And the identification is that this, these are the feathers falling from the angel's wings that are... Uh, filling the tabernacle or filling the sanctuary well there are there is a special category of angels around the throne of God that do have feathers but they're not angels that visit the earth so uh, that would be problematic plus if they did I, I, I just guarantee you they don't shed okay so um, their feathers are a little bit more hardy than um, than that uh, I wish I had time to go into detail. I've got some passages. I've got some passages here. I'd like to encourage you to read them in your own time. I just, I've run myself short on time. I won't have time to take you to them. John 14, 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 10. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Acts 2, 43. And Matthew 24, 24. Those passages basically tell the story that Jesus did in the John passage tell his disciples that those who truly follow me will see miracles, mighty works of God, in the same way that you've seen them in me, and even greater works than I've done, you'll see happening. But then later, in these other passages, the additional details that are added for our benefit is, these are, these are this is a special gifting to be able to work miracles in the name of the Lord, and it's primarily an apostolic gifting. So I don't have that gifting. That's why God has never done a miracle with me or through me. I am not an apostle. That's why God has never done a miracle with me or through me. But it's important to be able to identify those who are. And certainly here at the beginning of the book of Acts, God was working through the apostles as Acts 2.43, as we studied recently, tells us. Now, I'm also asking you to consider a biblical pattern. I've got, I've got some names over here. Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, 
Jesus and the apostles. There's one common thread with all of these names. I mean, there's more than one, but a main thread in relationship to what we're studying, which is miracles. Moses was a miracle-working prophet. More miracles done through Moses than any prophet that ever came before him. Elijah and Elisha, who one came right after the other, they were miracle-working prophets. And more miracles were done through them, even more than were done through Moses. And then, of course, Jesus came and did more miracles than anybody has ever done. And then the apostles that immediately followed him did miracles similar to his. What's the common thread? In each case connected to these names, God was doing a special thing in history. It was a special moment in history, a special time in history. With Moses, it was the rescue of the people of God, forming them into a holy nation and rescuing them out of Egypt, carrying them through the wilderness and into the promise, to the edge of the promised land. Uh, With Elijah and Elisha, hundreds of years later, but the people of God had drifted so far away from the Lord that the Lord used this pair of prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to call the people back to a faithful and righteous relationship with the Lord and his word and did miracles through them in order to give them the motivation to come back to the Lord. And of course, Jesus is the Messiah. He is starting a new era in world history. He's starting what we call the new covenant, starting what we call the church. And so it's it's exceptionally necessary that God did amazing things through him more than anyone else. And then the apostles are the, the foundation layers of the church. And so God does special things through them. Now, I believe God still does miracles, but I don't expect the same pattern of miracles, the same frequency of miracles as we see in the lives and the ministry of Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. But where does that leave us? Does that mean that the only evangelism we can ever do is if God someday does a miracle and then we'll evangelize? No, what we're going to see as we move on through the book of Acts, there are many evangelism moments that are not connected to the doing of a miracle. But at this point, at the beginning, it's miracles that God uses to start laying the first foundation of the church. Now, I've got one last passage here, and I'm saying we should lean on the Lord to draw each soul that does respond to the Lord. John 6, is just that key passage where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So every true evangelism moment where someone hears the gospel and is saved by it is a moment of the work of the Lord. It's kind of like when I was praying earlier about my, my friend from the burrito place, just being able to recognize the working of the Lord, whether it's a miraculous working or some lesser category of the Lord's working, it still requires the Lord's working and then the opportunity that the Lord gives us to represent him in that circumstance. All right, let's look at the end of our study today at application for today. Number one, consider Peter's willingness to interrupt his day to represent the Lord. I tried to emphasize this earlier, but I'll just say it a second time. The Lord will give you opportunities, but you've got to recognize them. And then once you see them, you've got to be willing to stop what you're doing for the day. Maybe you can get back to what you were doing after that, because Peter did go on and go to the prayer meeting, but he was willing to stop for however long it took in order to speak the words of the Lord and to accomplish the work of the Lord in the life of the man that the Lord wanted to reach that day. Second, discern the, dis- the distinction and the difference between real and fake miracles. Don't settle for the fake ones. 
Don't be so desperate to see a miracle of the Lord that you're willing to call something a miracle that isn't actually a miracle. And then watch for the Lord's work to single those opportunities that he is opening a person's heart and that person is ready to hear the words of life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word which guides and directs our steps, informs our minds, and enlightens our hearts. I praise your name for your work at the beginning of the church. I praise your name for the work that you're continuing to do with all those who truly call on you and live for you. Please bless us, Lord, to be even more fruitful in the way that we follow you as a church. And may your name be glorified through us. Amen. God bless.